Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a female murderer from 1975. So grab you some burger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1975, Margaret Thatcher became the first woman to lead a major political party in the United Kingdom, and the first woman to hold one of the great offices of state. She became Prime Minister after winning the 1979 general election, holding the position until she resigned in 1990. That same year, the blockbuster hit Jaws was released. The movie was highly popular, but also spurred a national fervor of fear, a drop in beach tourism, and a rise in shark killings. It has taken decades of science and activism to help post-Jaws generations understand and respect the role sharks play in the oceans and the ecosystems overall. Another thing that happened in 1975 was a robbery turned murder for an empty safe. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Brunch Gossip in 1997 at Swan Gardens Restaurant in Gladewater, Texas. Do you know the history of this house? Oh, yes. This was Miss Phillips' house. She was murdered here. There are these men in a beer joint. That's what I heard. They were talking and drinking, and one man said, I was in a house yesterday to do the carpet, and it had a built-in safe in the floor, and everyone sitting around, listening, perked up. The way I understood it, he and the girl came and knocked on the door, and asked to use the telephone because her car had broken down. Miss Phillips let her in, and then he came in, and then all the trouble started. On the evening of June 27, 1975, James Moulton took his date, Linda McCann, a.k.a. Stormy Summers, to Hurricane Club, just south of Longview on Texas 149. Walking into the club, Stormy spotted a friend, Stanley Joseph Falder, playing pool with his friend, Doyle Hughes. She took Moulton over to meet Falder, and the three sat down and got to talking. Hughes decided to continue playing pool. In the course of the conversation, Stormy brought up her financial troubles. Her and Falder started talking about robbery. And Moulton, worrying that Falder was trying to move in on his girl, mentioned a house he worked on a few months back that had a floor safe in one of its rooms. This house was owned by a prominent Gladewater widow, Inez Phillips. Her husband, who had just passed away that February, was once mayor of their town, and her son, an owner of a successful oil company. 
Gladewater, Texas is about 15 miles from Longview, and when Falder bragged he was a good safecracker, Moulton went to work on drawing a diagram of Miss Phillips' home. Hughes, still playing pool, would come by the table just to take a drink of his beer, and then went back to playing. But he did see Moulton sketching out some sort of diagram. He wasn't very interested and went back to play another game of pool. Moulton, Stormy, and Falder discussed the possibility of robbing this safe, as Moulton described her as an older woman and an easy target with lots of money. He also suggested tying the Phillips woman up because she was an old lady, and this way they wouldn't have to hurt her. Stormy and Falder seemed really interested, so Moulton said, Let's get in the car and I will take y'all to see the location of the house. Falder was living with Hughes at the time, so Hughes tagged along with the three on the drive. In the course of that car ride is where he learned that the others were discussing burglarizing the residence, and when conversation geared toward how they would split up the money, Moulton suggested that since there were four people involved, it ought to be 25% each. After showing them their residence, they all went home. Hughes, completely out of the conversation, Moulton, thinking the whole thing was a big joke, and Stormy and Falder, thinking about what they would find in that floor safe. Fast forward a few weeks, to the evening of July 8th. Falder was now living with Stormy and her husband, Ernie. That evening, Falder asked Stormy to take a ride with him to go check out Miss Phillips' house to get a vibe for it. Stormy agreed and got into the stolen car Falder had acquired through hot wiring. On the way to the home, they stopped off at a gas station where Falder wanted to see if he could successfully rob it. But after entering the store with his gun, he decided against the robbery, and the two kept on their way, even though Stormy did ask to be taken home. When they got to 427 North Main, Gladewater, Texas, Falder took out a handmade blackjack, a club encased in leather, for himself, and gave Stormy the gun, telling her to go knock on the back door. Phillips cracks open the door. Yes? Stormy. My car broke down. I was wondering if I could use your phone. Falder pushes the door open all the way and him and Stormy go inside. Stormy held the gun on Mrs. Phillips while Falder told her she wouldn't get hurt if she cooperated. Falder. Give me the combination to the floor safe. Phillips. I don't remember the code to the safe, but it wouldn't matter. There's nothing in that floor safe. Oh, I believe the code is written down somewhere in that drawer. Falder left Stormy to watch Mrs. Phillips and went to get the code and unlock the safe. Stormy brought Mrs. Phillips into one of the bedrooms, saw how worried she looked, and asked, If I laid the gun down, would that make you feel better and keep you from being frightened? Miss Phillips shook her head yes, so Stormy put the gun down and backed off. In a matter of seconds, Miss Phillips rolled over the bed and grabbed the gun. Stormy grabbed for the gun, too and the women started fighting to gain control of the gun. Stormy. My goodness, you're going to bring him back in here. 
Then, the gun went off. No one was hit, but the gunshot alerted Falder, and he came back to where the women were and saw them fighting. He was already upset because the floor safe was empty, and this unfolding in front of him sent him into a rage. He grabbed Mrs. Phillips, and he, along with Stormy, tried to lay her on the bed and tie her up, but she wouldn't stop struggling, so he took the blackjack in his hand and hit her in the back of the head, knocking her unconscious. The pair then put her on the bed, wrapped her hands together with tape, and also put tape over her mouth. Then they started searching the house for any valuables. Stormy was ready to leave, but Falder decided to go check on Mrs. Phillips. When he entered the bedroom, he heard her moan and checked the back of her head, felt that her skull was crushed, and made the decision to end her suffering. He walked to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, walked back to Mrs. Phillips, and stabbed her in the chest. Falder and Stormy left the house after this, and on the way back to Stormy's home in Longview, Falder threw the blackjack, tape, and two pairs of brown gloves out the window. At Stormy's, they started looking through the bag with all the loot, but after remembering how the night escalated, they put it all back in the bag, drove to the Sabine River Highway 149, walked underneath the bridge, about a hundred yards upriver, and threw the bag of stolen possessions in the river. Home again, Stormy told her husband Ernie that they had been to the victim's house and that she was dead. Ernie then followed Falder to a gas station so Falder could leave the stolen car and rode back with Ernie. Falder told him that there was an accident, that they didn't mean to kill the woman, but that she fell on a knife and then they hit her in the head because she was still alive. The next morning, the Phillips maid, Frankie Mae Howard, came to the home and started to begin her duties, but not long after the gardener asked her to relate a message to Mrs. Phillips. She made her way to the bedroom and called out for Mrs. Phillips two or three times. When she did not answer, the maid pushed the light switch by the bed saw the knife, which made her freeze, and she then started backing out of the room and went and got help. She called upon Billy Sorrell, an employee of Inez's son, Jack Phillips. When he arrived, he found the bedroom to have been ransacked and that Mrs. Phillips was lying face up on the bed with a knife in her chest. They called the police. Upon hearing this tragic news, Jack Phillips immediately offered a $50,000 reward for information on the crime. Linda McCann, a.k.a. Stormy, was quickly arrested. She then accused Falder of planning the burglary and committing the murder. Falder, however, was not arrested until two years later in Colorado, and he was then returned to Texas. He gave a voluntary statement to police confessing to the crime and was indicted by a grand jury, along 
with Stormy McCann and James Moulton, who you may remember was the one who told the other two about the safe in the first place. All three pled not guilty and were prepared to go to trial. Moulton, however, ended up pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit burglary in exchange for a five-year sentence. Falder went to trial and was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Stormy was all set for trial, but then the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed Falder's conviction and sentence in 1979. The appeals court concluded that police had obtained a confession from Falder in violation of constitutional protections, and this decision was upheld by the Supreme Court. What they were talking about was based around the fact Falder was not a U.S. citizen. He was actually a Canadian citizen. There are protections in place for those being interrogated in other countries, called the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. And by this international law, Falder had the right to seek legal counsel from Canadian authorities, but was not informed by police of this right when he confessed to the burglary and murder of Inez Phillips. Upon finding out the higher court's decision, Prosecutor Otis Hill was quoted as saying, I can't say yet if we will put Mr. Falder on trial again. We have 120 days to try him again, or he goes free. I'll be talking with Mrs. Phillips' son, and we will explore every possibility before any decision is made. If there does not appear to be sufficient evidence to put Falder on trial again, then a once convicted murderer will escape punishment. We would have to let him go, and that would be a regrettable outcome. Jack Phillips, very powerful and influential in the small town of Gladewater, was not going to accept defeat to the man he knew killed his mother. So he did something that would help to make sure they could try and convict Falder successfully a second time. Jack decided to hire two private prosecutors to help out the state, which was considered legal as the district attorney was still in control. Jack also offered Stormy $15,000 to testify at the trial and another $2,000 to her husband, Ernie, to corroborate her story. This move was also considered legal as it was said in court Stormy and Ernie would be receiving that money as allocating funds, basically protections, if their testimony did not secure a conviction and Falder was let out of prison. Stormy McCann pled guilty to conspiracy to commit burglary in exchange for 10 years probation, and she would have to testify at Falder's new trial. In 1981, Falder was again convicted and sentenced to death. Over the next 22 years, Falder had nine execution dates, with lawyers, such as Madeleine Albright, fighting to save him from execution. Upon one of his execution dates in 1992, Falder's sister, Pat, and his daughter, Camille, whom hadn't seen her father for over 20 years, 
because he abandoned his family in 1973. The pair traveled from Canada to Texas on Baldur's behalf for evidentiary hearing to tell the courts he was very loved by both family and friends. At this time, it was also learned Falder suffered a severe brain injury at the age of four when he fell out of a moving car and had caused him changes in his personality and that he was incapable of separating right from wrong. Canadians were also furious that the U.S. was going to put to death a Canadian citizen, which hasn't happened since 1952. Even with all of those advocating for him and protests in Canada, Stanley Joseph Falder was executed on June 17, 1999. I want to say a huge thank you to the Longview News Journal and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a male murderer from the year 1975. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod.com.